From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications, Stu Bundy from MUFON Canada, and Chris Stiles, independent UFO researcher, uh, best known for his work on the Shag Harbor UFO incident, all standing by, all here. And of course, yes, we'll talk Shag Harbor. What a year 1967 was for UFO sightings. We'll talk about that as well. Have you got your Falcon uh, Lake commemorative coin yet? Well, if not, maybe too late. They're sold out. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, let me uh, also remind you that uh, the three aforementioned gentlemen will all be part of the Alien Cosmic Expo, as will I, happening June 22, 23, 24. We'll give you more details on that, but it is happening Go to aliencosmicexpo.com for, for further details and to purchase tickets, or you can go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Right now, let me introduce the boys in the band. He is back from Lost Wages, Nevada, where he and his band played in a rockabilly festival alongside the great Jerry Lee Lewis. He's on the Flying V Gibson guitar tonight, Ian Robertson. Welcome back. Good to be back. Just a, a few words, if you would, on the, on the, uh, the Rockabilly Festival. We're so proud of you. Uh, non-stop bopping all night until 7 a.m. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and did, did, did the killer pull a knife on anyone? Or? Not that I know of. No? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's getting a little long in the tooth for that, I suppose. Yeah. He's still feisty, though, I'm betting. Yeah, his, his right hand is crazy on the keys. I know. You showed me a little bit of that video. Yeah. He can still play. The voice is getting a little frail, but he can still... Yeah, he can he still lets his, He lets his fingers do the talking. Yeah. Well, welcome back. We're proud of you, you. and uh, I know you'll share some more stories with us a little bit later. Uh, Here in studio, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, story producer Albert Vinzel, and on the Hammond B3 live stream producer Ryan White. Gentlemen, thank you all. Okay, let's uh, get into it, shall we? Shall we? Victor is uh, no stranger to this program, of course, the executive director of Zeland Communications and the... Uh, and Zeland News Network. He's a retired educator. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology and Psychology from York University and a Master's in Educational Admin and Curriculum Development from Brock. His research and analysis of anomalous aerial phenomena spans about 40 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalism in the field of ETI Disclosure Issues. Victor, welcome once again, my friend. Absolutely great to be with you. And with the band, and I should point out, you've got a guitar player, you've got a bass player, you've got a B3, and I'm a drummer. So you're, That's you're, right. you're all set. Let's take this on the road. Of course. <laughs> I'll count it in. I'll bring my air guitar. Uh, Stu Bundy is the Assistant National Director of MUFON Canada, a former CTV reporter turned ufologist. He's crossed over to the dark side. Stu has reached a research uh, at ancient sites from Stonehenge to modern enigmas like Area 51 uh, the last several years, and he's uh, here to tell us all about the Alien Cosmic Expo. Oh, we're still waiting on Stu. That's okay. Let's get to Chris Stiles, independent UFO researcher, best known for his work on the Shag Harbor incident and other classic UFO cases in Atlanta. Canada. 
He's the co-author of Dark Object with Don Ledger and Impact to Contact with Graham Sims. Chris has appeared and contributed to several feature UFO documentaries in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. He holds a blended view of the UFO phenomena where physical reality merges seamlessly with a powerful psychic component. Chris Stiles, welcome to Conspiracy, The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, and it's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. All right. And do we? Ha- oh, we're still working on Stu. That's all right. We'll get him, uh, gentlemen. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about the Alien Cosmic Expo, Victor. While we're we're getting Stu on board here, um, I mean, I, I know it doesn't have a theme specifically, but obviously, UFO disclosure is going to be front and center. Yeah, it's it's going to be probably one of the dominant features uh, as to. I think why uh, Stu and, and uh, all of the people at the MUFON organization here in Canada have uh, have taken this event and, and attempting to bring the event into the forefront with a, a clear view of looking at disclosure. And that's the, 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 the thrust of everything. And I know there are so many different aspects to what disclosure can be sort of uh, perceived as, but with the, the guests that we have, you know, uh, Linda Moulton Howe and Richard Dolan and Stanton Friedman and Grant Cameron, um, as a matter of fact, three of the ones that I just mentioned on there were on the most recent, recent Ancient Aliens uh, episode. We will get uh, to yeah, that. We'll get yes. to that later. In any case, um, what the thrust will be, we'll be looking at why disclosure has been hidden under sort of a big cake lid for so long. And now with the recent, um, I guess, admission by the United States government, the Pentagon, that they spent $22 million uh, on, a, on a UFO investigation program. Hey, Tip. That's we'll talk right. about that. Yep. It, it, that has to be part of the scenario. All right, let me get uh, Stu Bundy in here. Again, Assistant National Director of MUFON, former CTV reporter turned ufologist. And uh, we're happy to have Stu aboard as well. Hey, Stu, welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We were just talking about the Disclosure Roundtable that's happening. Give us the details. Again, the Alien Cosmic Expo, uh, the dates again. I know it's at the uh, the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, but just give people uh, some details, where to get tickets, what dates, oh, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. First of all... Um, uh, yeah, again, it, it is back at the Toronto Airport, and, uh, you know, Richard, when you, uh, when you, uh, moderated the, uh, the speaker panel, uh, it was, uh, it was a couple of years ago in, in Brantford, Ontario. That's right. And, yeah, and it was, uh, it, it was crazy because, first of all, I mean, you know, Brantford is not, a, you know, a super huge metropolis. It's a, it's a wonderful town. I, I love it. It's just that, you never, you never think you'd have this incredible uh, speaker panel, and there was, there was Travis Walton and Stephen Bassett and Paul Hellier and all these people. So we wanted to really try and recreate that because it was really, really special, and and people loved the information. We had all these world class ufologists all there, you know, in one room. Um, and so we're doing it again. It, it's June twenty second, twenty third, twenty fourth. So the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The Friday is a um, is an experiencer day, uh, led by Kathleen Martin, you know, one of the, the, the finest researchers in the world when it comes to experiencers and the abductees. Uh, she'll be and doing niece, a, a she was the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, of course. Yes. Uh, Leslie Mitchell Clark and Wes Roberts will be, um, doing a, you know, presentation and workshop. So, so that is on the Friday. On the Saturday, Linda Moulton Howe, Stanton Friedman, Victor. Hello, Victor. How are you? Just fine, uh, Steve. He'll be, actually, he'll be speaking on the Sunday. Uh, Grant Cameron, 
Susan Collins, Debbie Ziegelmeyer. In fact, I'm I'm down here in Los Angeles at the MUFON board meetings this weekend, and, and Debbie is on the board as well. Now, she is a master diver, uh, and she studies UFOs, the submerged UFOs. And so she'll be doing a special presentation on the Great Lakes, uh, you know, what sightings have been there. There are structures under the water that no one knows about in the Great Lakes. So that's going to be pretty really? cool. Really? I wasn't, I'm not aware yeah. of that. That's fascinating. <laughs> I know, neither was I. So uh, she says, I wanted to get her, you know, a small presentation while I was here. And she said, no, you're going to have to wait till June. And then she does another presentation, which, you know, she and her brother, Chuck Bukowski, has, have been to uh, Roswell over 20 times excavating different sites. And on one of her um, digs, they found an artifact. And it was, then they analyzed it. And she'll, she'll be, you know, giving us all the details. But this artifact, the, the, you know, the composition of it was very strange and really highly unlikely that it's found naturally well, that's exciting. New Mexico. So that's pretty cool, too. So we're, we're really looking forward to Debbie Ziegelmeyer. If I could just jump in, and, Stu, because I think it's sure. important to mention that Stanton Friedman, uh, this will be, I understand, his sort of his penultimate appearance, live appearance. He's doing the Roswell conference in uh, July. But this will be, the unless you're going down to Roswell, folks, this will be your last chance to see Stanton Friedman uh, at a conference like this, right? After this, that's it. He's hanging them up. But, I mean, he'll still do radio and so forth, but this will be his last appearance at a conference. Let me get Chris Stiles in here. Chris, just tell us a little bit about when you're going to be speaking uh, and um, what your presentation will entail. I think it's 10.30 Sunday morning. What I'm going to do is, is of course, speak about the Shag Harbor incident. And, you know, I'm going to kind of encapsulate the history of it, but at the same time, a good chunk of my presentation will be dealing with a lot of the new evidence and some of the effort that's been done research-wise that hasn't made it into the book or the documentary because, you know, it's still an active case, really. Um, Shag Harbor, I often like to say, is the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, we're going to give some of that up to Toronto when I'm up there. Excellent. And we will uh, we'll discuss Shag Harbor in more detail. We'll uh, come back. We'll talk about the state of disclosure, of course, the current status of uh, ATIP and uh, how Robert Bigelow fits into this and what Louis Elizondo is up to. And uh, we'll also get into, as Victor mentioned earlier, the Ancient Alien episode recently featuring uh, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager for the last presidential election. We'll uh, also talk about Shag Harbor, Falcon Lake, and much more. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. We have a bit of a UFO disclosure roundtable going here ourselves. Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications, Stu Bundy, Assistant National Director of MUFON, former CTV reporter, and uh, Chris Stiles, an uh, independent UFO researcher who's uh, best known for his work on Shag Harbor, the author, uh, the co-author of Dark Object about Shag Harbor, and uh, the co-author, along with uh, Graham Sims, of Impact to Contact. Uh, let me start with you uh, first, uh, Chris. I wanted to... Victor and I were talking about this off the air, and, and my producer Albert mentioned when he came in that the the um, the Shag Harbor, not the Shag Harbor, the Falcon Lake commemorative coin has now sold out. And um, what do you think was behind that? What, why did the Royal Mint decide this year of all years uh, to issue a coin about Falcon Lake? 
Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you they're trying to figure that out in Shag Harbor. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Why not Shag Harbor? <laughs> yeah, I um, I don't know. I mean, there's been uh, special things that have commemorated the Shag Harbor event in the past, such as the postal cancellation stamp, you know, that they give at the little post office there. Right. Uh, you know, those kind of things. Uh, those things are a mystery to me and of little concern, you know, on... The guy likes to get out of the armchair and knock on doors and round up witnesses and harass people for documents, etc. But uh, it does raise a thing. Perhaps there'll be a chance yet it'll be commemorated in that way or some other. I don't know. Of little interest to me. All right. Victor, you had an interesting story because yeah. you actually rang somebody up over there. That's right. Uh, in addition to what, what Chris was just talking about, uh, just after the coin came out, I got the news from, uh, from a friend of mine. And I said, geez, you know, where... Where is this coming from? And uh, so I called the Mint. I took some time and I called the, the Mint up in Ottawa. And it took me four or five stages to go through. But eventually I got to a public relations individual. His name is uh, Mr. Reeves. I forget his first name. In any case, we spent uh, almost a half hour on the phone. And I said, you know, what's the reasoning behind this whole thing? He said, well, we gather our um, sort of a, the top ten list of, of cultural events or events that are of cultural interest. And um, we thought that uh, that this one uh, would be ranking up there in the top three, and so they have a committee uh, put together to find out you know which which event might be the most uh, uh, I guess of interest to, to to people, and they came up with the Falcon Lake incident, uh, and they made a coin. Actually, it's really not a it's not a round coin. It's almost like a teardrop. It's not round. Hmm. It's a strange uh, strange shaped coin. Uh, and from that, they um, they expected to really um, raise people's interest in the whole UFO issue. No, not at all. It's just a cultural interest. That's all that he said. And I tried four or five times to pin him down. But what I did find out was of real interest. Is where does this originate from? He said, well, the, the whole initiative begins with funding that comes directly from the Minister of Finance. So what does that mean? That means that the, the office of the Minister of Finance has in some way authorized a coin about UFOs. Now, I'm not sure what that means in the big picture. It may be some interest, little interest, or big interest. But the fact of the matter is, in addition, if you begin connecting all the other dots that, that uh, Stu and I have been developing over the last little while with the Canadian Research Council on UFOs, that is a very interesting, what I call a converging line of evidence, pointing towards just perhaps... In addition to NORAD, the United States government and Canada have a lot in common about what this whole disclosure issue is. And that's one of the feelings that I have about the reasoning behind this. Government knows what's going on, and it's not just a myth. They know something is going on. Uh, Stu, any thoughts on that? Why now? Why this, uh, why this coin on Falcon Lake? Well, no, I, I, I don't know about the coin, but getting back, getting, we're adding on to what... Um Victor was saying, you know, he's absolutely right. This is a, a paramount concern, and it should be, um, to all Canadians. Uh, you know, there are things flying over our heads um, that, that we don't know about. The government's not telling us. Uh, you know, the Falcon Lake incident it is definitely one of the top, top five, top ten. I agree with Chris. You know, Shag Harbor, it was a no-brainer. should have been Shag Harbor. Um I mean, that story in itself, and I know he's going to get into it, and 
Um, you know, I was down uh, in Shag Harbor last October for the 50th anniversary, and it was just absolutely amazing listening to uh, a lot of the actual witnesses. Uh, uh, you know, Lori Wickens, um, he's, uh, you know, coming out of their mouths, the story, it's like it happened yesterday, and it's, it's like this story's like an onion. And when you hear Chris tell it, and, and he was so riveting, I said, you have to come to Toronto. You've got to come and speak and tell your story for all these folks who haven't heard it here. But it is. It's like an onion. You peel it back, you know, and there, there was a, there was a, a secret a naval base in Shelburne. You know, they were, they were laying um, sensors on the, on the uh, bottom of the ocean uh, to pick up Russian subs. You know, one of the stories was that, the, you know, Shag Har- the, the crash could have been a, a Russian satellite. There's all sorts of things. And then, to me, the, the one that gave me shivers, and again, Chris says it's so much better, I'll let him say it, but there was a deathbed confession of one of the Navy divers. And I, I put a lot of stock in deathbed confessions, you know, because when you're going to meet your maker, and you, you have some doubt, I'm like, is there heaven, is there hell? Well, I'm not going to lie in my last breath. Right. Uh, you know, okay, so there is a, there is a hell. Uh, I want to go to heaven. So I, I put a lot of stock in this, and the deathbed confession is, is crazy. So I'll let, I'll let him talk yeah, about that. Yeah, well, we were going to uh, hold off on, on that, but let's, we, let's go for it. Uh, Chris? Okay. He said the table I, I, for you. I, I would jump in and say, though, I, I agree with uh, Stu on the importance of Shag Harbor, but Falcon Lake is certainly a worthy case. And uh, a lot of information came to me when I was in Ottawa in the mid-'90s on that, but we'll save that for another time. Um, since Stu has brought up the deathbed confession, uh, basically I, I would lump that in with the, with the startling testimony of the Granby divers. And, you know, one of the misleading things, if you just viewed the documentaries or even read the book, Sometimes, you know, you don't get a sense of the arrow of time in this thing as I investigated. Um, you know, it was with encouragement of people like Stanton Friedman that I jumped into it when he couldn't answer my questions. And the thing is, in the beginning, um, you know, it was information overload. The first people I found were the Granby divers of the fleet diving unit. And they told me a story I was hardly ready for at the time. Uh, you know, I just read the news clippings of that, but these divers were telling me that, in fact, Shag Harbor was secondary to the Shelburne incident, which was happening simultaneously about 25 miles away and just offshore, literally a half mile from Canada's most secret base, which was a U.S. base on Canadian soil, Canadian forces stationed Shelburne. Two UFOs were sitting on the bottom. One was lending assistance, repairing the other. And these divers claimed they were down there and shot 400 feet of film. Wow. Um, That goes way beyond what was reported in the press, even though (laughs) Shag Harbor, you know, went out as a line story around the world. It was a headline story. Uh, There was much more to it that only come to light in my reinvestigation as I started in the 90s. Just give us a thumbnail sketch of it. Take us back to October 67, uh, Chris, for, for those not familiar with the details. Sure. Um, October 67, Canada's centennial year. Anybody who had been near the village of Shag Harbor on Old Highway 3, which is the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia on that night, and the night was October the 4th. It was a clear night. The moon had already set. It was so clear you could see six magnitude stars with binoculars. And what happened is if you'd been out on the road, and we're talking 1120 at night, anybody who'd looked up would have seen a set of flashing lights. 
and they went in a pattern, one, two, three, four, and then they would all flash, and this would repeat over and over. Not normal commercial air traffic. Anyway, these lights hovered for several minutes over the waters of Shag Harbor and eventually tilted to a 45-degree angle, descended to the water surface and hit, producing a bright flash and the sound of impact. People who were on the highway tended to lose sight of it behind the tree line. When they got near the shoreline, this thing was still floating on the water, and it now appeared as a pale yellow dome of light, unlike it did in the air. Many people called the nearby RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage, and they responded. They received seven calls that night. In fact, Lori Wickens, who Stu mentioned there, mm-hmm. one of the very colorful witnesses who remembers it well, he was the very first person to call. One of the unique things about this case, Richard, is that no one reported a UFO. Everyone who called simply said that they thought a plane had crashed into the sound or that lights had gone into the water. The RCMP responded. When they arrived on the scene, this dome of light was still floating on the water, maneuvering under its own power, and it was headed toward open sea. And what about the yellow foam? Tell me about the yellow foam. Yeah, well, what happened is uh, the next thing that was key was they called the nearby lifeboat from the life-saving station in Clark's Harbor. It made its way to the scene, and the RCMP commandeered two local boats and headed to the last known surface position. Just before they reached it, the the light uh, either submerged or disappeared, depending on, you know, the detail you get who you speak to. But they stayed on the surface. But when they did get there and put their lights upon the water, what they found was a streak of dense yellow foam that was 80 feet wide and half a mile in length. And people who are experienced with local conditions say it was not normal tidal foam. In fact, one of the men in the ship uh, was not fussy about putting a ship in it because he had concerns for buoyancy, found it very strange, was yellow, smelt of sulfur, and some of it at the lead end was still bubbling to the surface as it made toward open sea. Hmm. Did anyone have the presence of mind to collect any of that up? There was an attempt. One of the fishermen uh, attempted to grab some in a dip net, you know, a, a fine dip net, but it just tended to, you know, evaporate, like dissipate. You know what I mean? So there wasn't anything. Um, Norm Smith was the gentleman who tried to do this, but the thing is, you got to remember the main concern at the time is they thought they were looking for survivors. They thought that a plane had come down. Again, no one reported a UFO here, which is very unique. It was the next few days, as reports were coming out to the press, that the Navy, that the Coast Guard, and other agencies that were involved in the search, including those two nearby U.S. bases, um, we're referring to it as a UFO. So that label was hung on it by the authorities. Interesting. Victor, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to throw some uh, by, you, by you, Chris. Um, then, um, in, your, in your book, your earlier book, um, uh, Dark Object, you mentioned NORAD, and you spent quite a bit of time talking about an incoming target appeared mm-hmm. on the North, uh, was it North Bay radar or something, and, and I think we're, we're just scrambled at a North Bay, and did the radar actually pick up some sort of craft moving at 7,500 miles an hour, stopping, hovering, and then continuing on at 4,400 miles an hour? Do, do you have anything more to say about that? Well, these were details given by somebody who worked at the Shelburne base to us mm-hmm. and uh, had also served a Canadian Forces station, Barrington, at Baccarat. And it was part of that NORAD chain. It was what was known as the Pine Tree Line. Everybody's usually more familiar with the term the Dew Line. Right. There was actually a Mid-Canada 
and a pine tree line, and the back row base was this end of that. Um, staffers at that base were privy to that information at passes. We we don't have, you know, I have a large amount of documentation. We don't have actually have documents that describe that event where this thing entered the atmosphere. But what we do have is many of the military telexes, the primary form of communication that went between the base, and you can see by their response and their concern. And, you know, one of the most telling things that's great when you look at these documents, you often get more in the margin notes than you do in the body of text. For sure. And I can actually identify the writing of most of the people. And I, I managed to meet a lot of them face-to-face at the air desk, you know, that had served at the time in Ottawa where they ordered the underwater search. And, you know, they told me face-to-face they believed this was the real deal. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that screams that is one of the telexes that, that orders the underwater search at the top Squadron leader William Bain, who's quoted in the Chronicle Herald article that was went out as a line story around the world, writes UFO in big block letters at the top and underlines it three times. I've looked at thousands of these documents and reports, and that's the only time I've seen that. When I asked him, he said, well, <laughs> as far as we were concerned, this was it, you know? Is that what makes it, Shag Harbor is often described as the, the, the world's only officially documented UFO incident? Yes, well, the thing, that's it. I mean, the thing is, um, like there was, a, for example, a memo that circulated through defense headquarters 36 hours after the incident began. And there, there's four little paragraphs that describe the incident in a briefing to the defense minister and others, and they all sign off on it. And in the third paragraph, it actually says, a preliminary investigation has been conducted by the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, and it has been determined that no flare, float, aircraft, or in fact any known object is responsible for this UFO. At one point, at what point uh, is it seen traveling under the water? Well, I, I don't suppose it was seen in the, in the sense of you know a visual, right? But initially, of course, as you know, the Coast Guard arrived, and eventually. Seven naval divers were sent to the last known uh, surface position, at, you know, just half a mile out from the impact site. And, you know, they searched there for five days. But what we now know is that, that nearby Shelburne Base, uh, which was Canada's most secret base at the time, it was the coordination center for submarine detection for the whole Atlantic Ocean, and it was hooked into two major grids. One was called the MAD grid, which stood for magnetic anomaly detection. And the other one was simply a hydrophone system where they microphoned the whole Atlantic Ocean. And they were tracking this thing as it moved under the water. And also they had aircraft going over and dropping sonar buoys. Chris, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. Chris Stiles talking about Shag Harbor, Stu Bundy, the assistant director of MUFON Canada, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Stu Bundy stays with us. AlienCosmicExpo.com, or go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network and Chris Stiles is here talking Shag Harbor. Uh, co-author with Don Ledger of Dark Objects, and um, the uh, the more recent one is Impact to Contact. Uh, 
Now, before the uh, the break, Chris, you were talking about uh, the Navy uh, dive team that went down, uh, and they were looking. F- was it five days later, or they were? Um, anyway, pick up where you left off during the break about these this di- these divers that went down looking for this uh, whatever it was that landed on the water just uh, off of the the coast of Shag Harbor. Yeah, um, there was a. a you know, what, what happened is on the first night, of course, the uh, Coast Guard arrived from the life-saving station, and uh, they got on scene and searched until 3 a.m. and planned to return at first light. Um, they had a couple of RCMP divers on the scene and were trying to re-interview witnesses and just get things together. Um, they were also checking, of course, with the Rescue Coordination Center as to see if there was any late or missing aircraft. But as the composite uh, details were being pooled together, it was becoming pretty obvious they were dealing with something unusual. Um, their observations in Shag Harbor were forwarded through the RCMP to uh, uh, Defense Headquarters in Ottawa. From there, it was shuffled down to what was the Air Desk, Canada's equivalent of Blue Book. But then again, the Air Desk was more than that because we actually did on-site investigations. Shag Harbor, Falcon Lake being a couple of them that year. And to put that in perspective, that year they would have received 256 reports from RCMP or police that they thought were worthy, and there were actually nine on-site investigations, to give you some perspective. Anyway, what happened is once clearance was given to Squadron Leader Bain to spend the money, he sent uh, a request to Maritime Command in those days, which was in Halifax, to order an underwater search, and seven divers from the fleet diving unit were sent down and they hired a local tender and they looked for the next five days until last light on sunday evening the crash uh, occurred like would have been wednesday night eleven twenty, and at that point the effort was was canceled uh, claiming no results officially however interestingly enough there was no attempt to explain it away with some kind of cover story like a weather balloon or mishap or whatever um, and ironically, however, though, the story that was unknown to the public, the Shelburne story, um, you know, Nova Scotia, Canada in 67 wasn't like New Mexico in 47. You just couldn't send everybody home or claim war jitters or something like this. Um, but I think somebody was half clever in Ottawa and looked at this and thought, you know what? They knew the real operation outside the public eye was... 25 miles away off the coast of Shelburne. Let's let them look at Shag Harbor. We couldn't put it away. Uh, you couldn't hide that anymore, so let them look there. They already knew the thing had left the area under the water, and they were already down trying to gather or contain any debris or any artifact they might have found. So, unfortunately, Shag Harbor was, in a way, its own cover. Hmm. Uh, we, we do want to talk about Shelburne, just, but I just want to invite Stu Bundy to jump in here. I don't want to leave you uh, hanging there, Stu. If you have any uh, questions <laughs> no, I, or comments on this, please jump in at any time. Yeah, no, it, it truly is, you know, Canada's Roswell. Um, and, and, you know, the way, the way Chris uh, has, has investigated this um, throughout the years, uh, I, don't, I don't know of any other um, UFO investigation uh, that has had this kind of coverage and this kind of in-depth analysis and just basically hard work from any other, you know, any other uh, researcher. Uh, you, you can think of, um, you know, Stan Friedman and uh, and Roswell. Um, I mean, that, you know, that parallels what, what Chris has done for this. Um, but, yeah, you know, like you said, there's still a lot of questions. 
Um, and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully Chris will get to the, uh, the bottom of it, of it, you know, someday. Uh, but we may never, we may, may never know for sure. Uh, but what, what I, what I do know is that, uh, um, you know, those, those deathbed confessions were, um, are, are quite telling. And, and I really think, um, you know, we've got something there. Victor, I know you had a question about the Shelburne incident. I think it's important to, to recognize or at least try to obtain the distinction between what happened in Shelburne and, uh, you know, 25 or 35 uh, miles to the other side of the, to the peninsula, what happened in Shag Harbor. And my understanding, Chris, is that um, you had a long conversation um, and was, was it at times pleasant with a fellow named Harry. Uh, was, was he one of the divers? Yes, he was. Okay. He was one of the seven Granby divers. Right. And, right. Um, you know, one of the things when we released Dark Object and that came out, that these men, we granted them anonymity, but it was a very limited anonymity. There mm-hmm. wasn't that many men in the fleet diving unit in those days in Halifax. Yeah, but you, you really had some, uh, I don't know if it, if it came to uh, fisticuffs or anything, but he gave you a pretty hard time in trying to separate the two incidents, and he said to you, you'll never get the Shelby story. Well... Isn't that what he said? Yeah, yeah. And and, and the thing is, um, you know, Shag Harbor, like, was a headline story. It was out. It was the one the public knew, right? Mm-hmm. But what happened in Shelburne, they tried to keep a lid on, and they did. In fact, you know, it was only a scandal in the 80s that revealed the true nature of the base there where this was happening. Mm-hmm. For a long time, it operated under the cover story. There's even a U.S. website that covers this quite well, you know, an official U.S. Navy one. But the cover story for the Shelburne base was that it was an oceanographic, hydrographic research station. But, in fact, it was the coordination center for submarine detection for North America, right? Mm-hmm. And when the base opened in 55, it flew uh, the U.S. flag only. In 62, it was a joint effort, you know, similar to an ORAD arrangement, right? But that base, you know, you can imagine, you know, if you've got two strange craft sitting on the bottom halfway between the docks of the base and nearby McNutt Island. I mean, <laughs> they quarantined all the men, you know, the, they put the clamps down the media. They tried to close Sandy Point Road to local residents and everything. But the world was distracted by Shag Harbor and what was happening elsewhere. I, I mean, Shag Harbor, Shelburne were just the tip of the iceberg. You know, down east here, we often refer to it as the night of the UFOs because if you look at police files, I mean, there's just UFOs reports everywhere from that same night and in fact just off the coast there there was a dragger with 18 men that was surrounded by four ufos and they called the mounties and they came in and they filed a report that yep. same night all right we've got to and take this a... was before shag harper hit the media all right we'll come back and we'll explore the rest of the iceberg victor vigiani zeland news network chris styles dark object the shag harbor ufo incident Stu bundy from mufon canada back with more in a moment stay with us You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Stu Bundy, Assistant Director of MUFON Canada, is uh, here. Victor Vigiani, Zealand uh, Communications, and Chris Stiles, uh, the uh, the co-author of Dark Object. We're talking about the uh, the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Uh, but perhaps we, as Chris explained, that's... It provided its own cover because the real action perhaps was up in, in uh, Shelburne near a, uh, a joint U.S.-Canadian 
submarine base. But let me uh, just bring Stu Bundy in here uh, because he's just staying with us uh, for, for one more segment. And, Stu, I just wanted to give you an opportunity once again to uh, to promote the um, the Alien Cosmic Expo conference happening up in June. So give us all the particulars again. Sure, absolutely. June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Uh, that's the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You can get tickets uh, at the website aliencosmicexpo.com. Uh, the Friday is the Experiencer Day with Kathleen Martin. Uh, Saturday, a full day with speakers. Sunday, a full day with speakers. Uh, Chris will be uh, doing his presentation Sunday morning, and then there is a, uh, a roundtable, a disclosure roundtable, uh, moderated by yourself, Richard. Thank you very much for, for agreeing to help us out again this year. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the disclosure subject, and I, and I do have something to say to Chris about uh, about Shag Harbor in a second, but I just have to get this in. The, the disclosure subject is bigger than ever since December 16, 2017, last December, uh, when, the, when the Pentagon um, uh, UFO video, the first one was, re- was released. You know, there's three of them now. They're called Gimbal, Fleur, and, uh, and Go Fast. And that was a game changer. Uh, I've been in this for 15 years as, as a field investigator. We've got, you know, 30 field investigators. They're all volunteers. We have 500 MUFON members, 5,000 worldwide. We're in 27 countries now. But this is huge. It's nothing that's ever happened like this. The Americans are releasing this. You know, and Victor can attest to this. From an inquiry from, from Victor, the response he got from the, from the Department of Defense was some lame picture of a Billy Meyer UFO with, with the caption underneath saying something to the effect that, oh, sorry, we don't bother ourselves with uh, a trivial things like this that aren't real. I, I can't, I'm just paraphrasing. Victor can correct me there, uh, but uh, it, that's ridiculous. You know, everybody is coming out. The British Department of Defense released tens of thousands of, of uh, documents. Um, Peru, uh, we've got some uh, the Chilean Air Force video. Uh, you know, everyone's coming out. And what are we doing? Nothing. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the government's official response was we don't bother with trivial matters like this but going back to 1967 in Shag Harbor that was a banner year for UFOs in and not only in and around you know October uh, 4th of 67 but sightings yep, were up absolutely. like like threefold or fourfold from the previous year and then they uh, Chris Witkowski uncovered these uh, documents at the National Archives, something like 28 pages showing just exactly how interested the government was someone was preparing a, a, a briefing for, I suppose it was Paul Hellyer's uh, replacement as Minister of Defense. So obviously in 67, there was a hell of a lot going on, and the government was clearly very interested. No, they absolutely were. And when I, when I talked to um, Paul Hellyer a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you were there. You were at the highest position as the Minister of Defense. And, you know, what did you know? Certainly, I asked him about a Project Magnet uh, with uh, Wilbur Smith and from 1950 to 53, where they were studying um, um, magnetic anomalies because they, they believed that the saucers uh, would tap into the, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth, and that's how they used it for propulsion. And they also uh, were, were surmising that um, how they, um, you know, uh, controlled the craft, how they actually, you know, directed it and moved was through psychic ability. And this was back in, you know, in the early 50s. And Paul said he, he didn't know anything. He didn't hear anything about uh, um, Project Magnet and, and you know, uh, or, or what the results were or any of the uh, data. 
and he didn't hear anything about UFOs until, um, you know, in the 2000s when, you know, he started hooking up with uh, Victor Vigiani and, uh, um, and it all started with um, someone got him to read the book by um, Corso uh, the day after Roswell. Right. And he said that was, that was a game changer. So he didn't even know uh, what was going on. So it, it's almost kind of like uh, mirroring the U.S. that um, there are certain uh, departments that are very, very dark. Well, and, um, here's something interesting about these documents, and then we'll get back to, to Chris and, and Shag Harbor. But th- these documents, again, from the National Archives, showing just how interested the government was in 67. And this is about a couple months after Paul Hellyer had left, the Honorable Paul Hellyer had left the Ministry of Defense. The documents show the investigation into UFOs was a little bit of a hot potato in Canada, as it as in it was frequently handed off between departments. When a new report came in, researchers would first decide if the object was a meteor or fireball. If so, it would be directed to the NRC. If it was something else, it would be then put in one of three categories. Class A, worthy of investigation. Class B, interesting, but you don't need to look into it. And Class C, boring. And then they involved other several other agencies, including the RCMP, NRC, Defense Research Board, and then, this is kind of weird, the Department of National Health and Welfare. What do you make of that, gentlemen? <laughs> well, wow. Tell you, certainly sounds like a hot potato. Why would the Department of National Health be involved? That one is a bit of a puzzler. I haven't heard of that. But I can tell you that after Shag Harbor, after Falcon Lake, there was an analysis done by the Department of National Defense, and the determination that was made was that the phenomena was worthy of study, but it should be handed off to another department and not appear to be an issue of national defense. They thought that it should be handled to the NRC for what they deemed serious scientific investigation. And when that first happened... There were two people that took the bull by the horns there, and that was Professor Tennyson at the University of Toronto and uh, Rupert McNeil uh, of Wolfville, Nova Scotia at Acadia University, and they made a pretty good effort. The only trouble was they'd put a, a, a rider in place where if they needed field units, they were to call the RCMP, but for some reason that never, ever happened. And when these two men retired, nobody took up you know, the cause with them, and it just faded away, and they just started filing reports like they did with Blue Book in the States, which at that point had been canceled. And this continued, and those reports would eventually make their way to the Herzberg Institute in Ottawa, up the street from the Prime Minister's at 100, but in 1999, they stopped accepting them. Hmm. All right. Uh, we have about four or five minutes before the top of the hour. Let's, uh, let's get the circle back to Shag Harbor. And um, Victor and I were talking off air about, you know, we still don't have it sort of concrete in our minds about what was going on in Shelburne and how that relates to Shag Harbor. Uh, But there was something very strange going on in Shelburne. This is around the same time, right? The same night, the night after? Uh, According according to local residents, they place it at the same time. Uh, the residents here remember the attempt to close uh, Sandy Point Road that many of them lived on. This is the one single road that went out to the U.S. base there. And, right. uh, you know, they could only do that for so long without attracting attention, of course. But, like I say, you know, they were certainly, you know, things were free and open in terms of what was happening in Shag Harbor. CBC cameras filmed the dive effort, you know, the next day on the local tender. Um, in some of the early documentaries, you see a few seconds of that lifted out. 
But, um, you know, there was so much happening. But Shag Harbor, you know, by allowing the media in, by having the Navy do an underwater search, it kind of eclipsed the interest in everything else. But, like, that night there had just been so many sightings. But And, Victor, I mean, what was going on? Up in Shelburne, I mean, there were barges coming in, and they, they were trying to get something off the the, uh, the the floor of the ocean, right? Well, in in uh, in Dark Object, in uh, in I forget what chapter number it is, but on, on page one twenty one, Chris talks about the barge is one thing, and then uh, they speak about an atomic furnace mm-hmm. and the the attempt to explain away what might be down below there and hoisting it up. And trying to use that as a cover story as to what might have happened with five or six or six or seven ships in the area, there seemed to be total confusion. Uh, a to be what was happening, and then B, why did they decide on a story called uh, an atomic furnace being hoisted up by a barge? It, it's totally confusing to me. It's an odd one. So they brought in a barge, and they were going to do another what? Another rescue operation? There was something on the on the floor of the ocean. Well, again, this is what some of the Granby divers claim. What, what is clear, because there were pictures of it in the local paper, the Shelburne Coast Guard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of these this huge ocean-going barge, and it had huge tarps on it. Uh, th- this thing was just an enormous thing, and the cover story, if that's what it is, claimed that they were taking nuclear furnaces, whatever that's supposed to be, um, they came in because supposedly the barge was leaking and needed a repair. It was only in at the port for something like six hours, and it sailed again. It was supposed to take these up to St. Lawrence, but so does New York, you know. But it's a very strange story, you know. Um, you know, make of it as you will. But it's not every day that right in this time frame on the Saturday after the Shag Harbor incident is, is, you know, they haven't even called off the underwater search there, that you had this huge U.S. barge come in towed by a, a, an ocean-going U.S. tug, uh, you know, to take nuclear furnaces up to St. Lawrence. And were there not some sort of uh, attempts to get film down below? Well, yes, yeah. I mean, the, the in fact, the, the diver who told me this, interestingly, I, I mean, like I've said, one of the frustrating things about the Shelburne story, and I've always referred to it as the story, unlike the Shag Harbors, that we don't have the official documents. But one of the things I was able to do was, like, when somebody came to me and they said, hi, I'm so-and-so, and they, you know, told me the position. Back in those days, they used to have this great thing in Canada called Might City Directory. It was like the phone book. But you could go through the streets numerically and that. You could go through names, and it even told you what a person's job was, right? And when I looked up the gentleman who claimed to film this, he is listed in the 1967 book as Underwater Naval Photographer, RCN Active Service. Hmm. You know, so he wasn't just some swabby in the uniform telling a tall tale. This was his position. And again, Harry, one of the divers, said to you, you'll never get this story. Is that right? Well, that's what he said. I mean, you got to remember that when these guys come in, you know, they're not taking this stuff home. I mean, when I would ask a question, they would give me a very detailed answer, uh, such as, like, they say they found a few little artifacts and pieces in this. What did you do with them? Well, they loaded them on an old Army deuce-and-a-half truck, which they called Old Sid, and they drove it to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, to the Defense Research Board building on Grove Street, which is still in that location. But, like I say, you know, for all the documentation we have, the orders, the the analysis of the Shag Harbor incident, that hard documentation is wanting for Shelburne. But at the same time, 
we have RCMP reports and other documentation that mentions that there was a second search effort and another incident there. So are we going to call that building in Dartmouth our Dartmouth R Hangar 18? <laughs> well, it's 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 the point where we lose track where the story goes cold. So, yeah, it's a place many people drive by every day between our two bridges. Well, I, I said to Richard earlier, uh, Roswell has its uh, balloon story and uh, Shelburne has its uh, atomic furnace story. As a cover-up, so it, there seems to be some similarities. That's there. a sexier cover story for my in yeah. my book. An atomic furnace that'll keep people at bay, though, right? You don't want to mess with that. Anyone will, you know, a weather balloon is not going to scare anybody off. But an, you know, talking about a a leaky, perhaps a leaky nuclear furnace, yeah, that'll keep the folks, yeah. uh, the nosy uh, Parkers, away. Uh, we'll take a time out. We'll say goodbye to Stu Bundy. Stu, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for this. Thanks, Richard. It was great uh, being on, and, and Chris, can't wait to see you as well uh, in a few weeks. And um, Thanks, Victor. You're awesome. Victor is our disclosure warrior. All right, Stu, all the best. Thank you. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett.